Welcome to Open Source Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz, emerging from uh, lockdown, shutdown, whatever, but it doesn't really feel like it, does it, Adam? I don't know mm. what to feel anymore after all these months. It's just like, ah, okay, I'm not locked down anymore. But we're still remote. We're still <laughs> we're still not phoning it in. But there's no more stay-at-home order. But we're still on the emergency break? Question mark. Uh, and then stuff happens on June 14th, maybe. So exactly, uh, we're doing it pretty all... good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, open source is a CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world, and we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, who will talk to us about the government's current response, hint, 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 to the pandemic, and his own election calculations as the election is officially less than a year from now it's on june 2nd 2022 or maybe before but uh all the political parties are now officially counting down to uh one year from uh, to election day so we will talk to still steven del duca about that uh that'll be at the bottom of the hour before that we're going to talk about the insurrection attempt on january 6th and the unsurprising dearth of willingness to investigate that on the part of the Republican Party and why that may be a slow motion coup now. Uh, But first, uh, we have real tragedy here in Canada, uh, tragedy with mass graves and stuff. And as you may have heard uh, in Kamloops, uh, on the grounds of the Kamloops Indian Residential School, um, and this was a a project of the center that that now uh, kind of... um, shepherds the property they they took this of their own initiative to look up on the property to see if there were mass graves and lo and behold there was a mass grave 215 indigenous young people some as young as three were discovered and uh boy did this blow up big time uh the news this week oh absolutely and uh, obviously lots to unpack here but the it's interesting to me that it came down to kind of an independent, not independent, but the actual uh, um, Kamloops group themselves having to get, having to do their own research on this. Because I think mm-hmm. part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendations was that a deeper dive needed needs to happen still into, um, th- they had an estimate as to how many uh, kids were murdered at residential school but not only that there's so many unaccounted for um just just to complete there there's a a ton of of mystery to this which the which will i think from this point on start to get picked apart right we're gonna Mm -hmm. this is the sort of it in itself absolute tragedy but it's the kickoff to more tragedy to come because or not tragedy come but reveal it revealing the history of this and and unpacking that entire arc of of time and it's initially there seemed to be the response was surprise but mm-hmm. that's not or ever the response from the indigenous community and 
I sort of have a bit of a personal anecdote. People, I've talked about this before, how I lived in the North and I had some indigenous friends when I was at college. And every once in a while, the conversation would turn, they were 60s scoop people. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, the conversation would turn to this other place, even darker than the 60s scoop, if that's possible. It's all, the root is the same of all of it and had stories like this. There mm-hmm. was a residential school in a place in the North called uh, Spanish. Spanish Ontario, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good, good colonial name, and uh, <laughs> it, it's one of the ones on the list of what is it now? And it was like a hundred and is it a hundred and thirty-five? Mm-hmm. A lot of them have been flattened. A lot of them still stand, and I think some of them have become community centers for certain in, indigenous groups, among other uses, right? But that's, um, yeah. So this is. So, in and of itself massive but it's it is literally just the beginning of where this is going to go uh yes uh there are a ton of horror stories and i heard some of them at the vigil on tuesday evening down at the basilica just you know of people who went to residential schools uh trading stories and uh with themselves telling stories to their descendants their their children their grandchildren about you know being told they were going to school on top of graveyards and uh, seeing nuns bury things um, in the back of the school. Um, you know, when a lot of those schools were closed, like them being torn down and, uh, you know, the church, you know, <laughs> burning documents like <laughs> like mm-hmm. the like the Russians were just down the road. Like waiting the wall is falling for... down. So, yeah, yeah just yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's it's stark. Um, it, and it's it's stark because it's like right here in our our own backyard. Like, hey, we're Canada. We're cool, everybody. But it turns out, you know, we're very, very not cool. And it, the, the thing with the. Like the truth and reconciliation, you're right. This is one, this was one of the recommendations that there has to be like a full accounting of the kids that died and having to go back to these places and doing a thorough archaeological uh, examination to make sure that there weren't kids mm-hmm. who just fell off the rolls and you know didn't come to school anymore and nobody knows what happened to them except they were you know buried on school property. Um, the thing is, Carolyn or went ben- into the furnace. Right. Well, into the state. Yeah, well, well, there's exactly. that too, and it's it's grim. And we should we should have set off the top about you know giving people a heads up as to as to where this conversation might go, and yeah. also sort of mark that this is indeed a couple of settlers discussing this issue. So it's not like we yes. we know where we are in this. So it's you know not to give anybody um, right you know fa- no, false right. impression about where we're coming from. You know what I mean? But that's sorry, I should have set that off the top. Yes, but. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Scotty and I are as white as the driven snow. Um, <laughs> to, to, not to make light of this, of course. It no. just, you know, <clears throat> there was, a, and Carolyn Bennett pointed this out in 2009, there was a request from the commission, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as like, hey, how about a million and a half to do like deep penetrating radar scans of residential school sites? And the conservative government was like, yeah, that's a hard pass. And I, I understand what Carolyn Bennett is getting at it you know it's a chance to smear the opposition party and it's a chance to pass the buck but i mean yeah number one you know seeing michelle rumble gardner who's uh visiting ottawa so thanks for that and then aaron o'toole who just a few weeks ago said 
uh, or I guess not a few weeks, but a few months ago, said that, you know, residential schools were, you know, if you eliminate all the bad stuff, they're pretty great educational opportunities. Um, you know, putting those people aside, this has been the liberals proverbial cross to bear for the last six years now and so like carolyn bennett passing the buck just doesn't work the question is why wasn't your government writing a check for a million and a half or two million dollars to get this done and why was it on the the sort of caretakers of the of this land in in Kamloops sort of take it upon themselves why isn't this a national project why haven't all the 94 items from the truth and reconciliation uh, commission be done why aren't we riding the ass of the catholic church and pope francis to get like formal recognition why are we still pussyfooting around with uh not to pick on the local uh, <laughs> the local priest father ian duffy but when he says and i'm gonna try and find uh the exact quote here like he said something to the effect of you know if the catholic church had a role in this and i'm like dude you are not a lawyer. Uh, the word if there is doing a lot of work. It's like, granted, the Catholic Church wasn't the only church, but it is the church that is not recognizing any of this. And just before I throw it back to you, I'll just make one more point, which is uh, they did release a statement through Guelph today, um, or I guess generally. Uh, I don't know who they released it to, but... Um, you'll go to the Hamilton Diocese website, which is the Diocese for Guelph, or you know the Basilica of Our Lady, which where the, where that vigil is held. There's no mm -hmm. formal statement. There is if you go to the Wellington Catholic District School Board website. There's a formal statement and a recognition, but not when you go to like the Catholic Church proper. Because I think I mean at the end of the day, the school board is like flying the pride flag. So I mean, <laughs> be that as it may, it just like if the Catholic Church wants to. Uh, you know, acknowledge any time their role in any of this, uh, that would be great. And it would be really great if uh, our illustrious prime minister, um, who said a lot of really nice things about reconciliation at the beginning, would sort of use some of his um, his access and his uh, pulpit to really get something done instead of just passing the buck. Again. Yeah, and this straight out of the the sunny ways days right this was this was a promise made that it was going to things were going to be different right and that we there was going to be this new relationship but the, it it's it has stayed the same and that is the that is the great question as to, as to why even something as simple as the like you mentioned the ground penetrating radar money there's plenty of cash for other things they can have emergency debates on pipelines but they can't do this. Why? Is something like that would be so simple. Also, something simple that people have requested is the Catholic Church to apologize because they are mm -hmm. the only ones that were involved in the hierarchy of residential schools, includes Anglicans and the churches that became the United Church. There were other players involved mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. They're the only ones that have not said, we are sorry. And I hear that from a lot of indigenous leaders and almost anybody who speaks on the topic is like, why can you not even just apologize for this beyond asking for reparations and anything else? Right. But that's well, he, with, you've got this, this triple play of the churches doing mm -hmm. the government's bidding of the day up until the nineties. This is living memory stuff, right? Mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. are people my age that were in residential school and let's not forget the RCMP. Mm -hmm. 
who were given the task of rounding, literally rounding children up to go to these schools, among other things, right? So they're they you know they're not off scot free in this either, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. all has to be picked apart. Yeah, I found the quote. Uh, Father Duffy, Duffy said, "If the church in any way collaborated with this tragedy, then the church is a logical place, especially for the indigenous community, to begin to do their grieving, and hopefully, the grieving leads to a road of healing as well." How does the road to healing, or how does the road lead to healing, if the one of the people on the road um, doesn't acknowledge that they're going to somewhere to heal? Um, which I mean, that analogy is doing a lot of work, but I, that that's kind of the state of affairs and it's just like this mealy mouth lawyer talk um because yeah. they know it's like <laughs> and it's the same thing with you know all the kids that were assaulted by the church by um i should say by you know priests and leaders in the church but you know they haven't uh, admitted culpability there and the laundry list of of charges is a mile long including actual criminal charges and there's no apology because you know they're playing it the law and order way. It's like we can't we can't admit culpability because that leaves us open to you know lawsuits, lawsuits and legal action. They might have to maybe sell a couple of churches and you know pawn a couple of gold crosses to to cover the the lawyer fees. Which, I mean, at the end of the day, the church isn't just a church. I know I know that to, to a lot of people, the Catholic Church means something holy and spiritual. But at the same time. It is also a corporation. It is also a country. It is mm. also a bank. And those things have to be reconciled as well. And not to mention all this, the crimes done in, in their name, which are actual crimes. And if it had happened in, to Canadians in another country, we would call them war crimes. Oh, absolutely. But also, and speaking of crime too, uh, from, the, from the government angle at least, there's, it seems there's three court cases ongoing right now. The government, current yeah. government, has spent millions of dollars fighting survivors, particularly the ones from uh, the St. Anne's School mm-hmm. who rigged up a an electric chair. I heard this from Cindy Blackstock was speaking. She said it in more than one conversation there. This school had an electric chair as a punishment. Mm-hmm. So some survivors from that school are taking the government to court and they spent, well, I think it's over $3 million to fight, to fight it. And it's, you'd be like, Take a step back. Why are you still fighting this? Mm-hmm. So anything that Trudeau or any of them could possibly say, and oh, and O'Toole, yeah, changing the tune pretty quickly, eh? Mm-hmm. But of course, we, you know, stupid leftists at universities, which was also part of that conversation, <laughs> don't know anything. Right? <laughs> I'm the dumbest person on this station, it would seem. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I'm a student again, so I can say that, right? But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, not to make light of anything at all, but it's like, wow, it's amazing how that tune changed overnight. And then somebody did a little bit of digging and said, oh, by the way, well, you said this. Michelle Rempel, too. I mean, all, all of them. At this point, it's it's all of them, with some exceptions, right? Like, anybody who was government during this period, so it's a conservative and liberal. And when I say the period, I mean 1867 and prior, Really? Yeah. Upper Canada, yeah. right? It's not as if this just appeared in 1867, but... Mm-hmm. Um, and the John A. statue, too. I guess you heard that story, but in, in they yeah. finally got rid of the one in Charlottetown. Mm-hmm. Two weeks ago, there was a vote to keep it. Two weeks later, this comes out, and it's gone. But this is no secret. Yeah. This is, this is no secret. And the, I think the best tweet I saw, one of the best tweets I saw, was short to the point it said... 
unmarked graves are rarely unmarked by accident, right? For sure. So the the cover up needs to be revealed and everybody needs to come clean and until that happens this nation's still just going to be, you know. Well, even in a war, even in a war zone, you know, you get a cross and, you know, they'll put your dog tags on the cross so they can, you know, find you later and reinter you or, you know, do, you know, properly identify remains later. And, yeah. you know, that's that's in a war. It's um, called truth and reconciliation for a reason. Right. right? And, there, and I, justice, there should be justice. And I completely agree. If, like, <laughs> the government really wanted to do something to help the cause, they would end all appeals to these lawsuits tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of taking action tomorrow, uh, the Republicans in the United States refuse to take action and uh, have a inquiry of their own into what happened on January the 6th. Uh, you may have seen the video. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We all saw the video <laughs> yeah. uh, of you know, people trying to smash the Capitol uh, with their intention to round up elected officials who are about to ratify the election of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States. Uh, how quickly some forget, barely five months later, we're already to move on. And uh, there was a, uh, well, long story short, there was a, a, a couple of uh, Congress people, a Democrat and a Republican, came up with terms and conditions for a bipartisan commission to look into the events of January 6th. It passed the House um, with 30 Republicans and all the Democrats, um, but it then went to the Senate to die, where only 54 senators, including six Republicans, voted in favor of it um, because, <laughs> because of silly supermajority rules in the Senate. You need not just a majority of 54 to 35, which is this, that's what this was in this case, but you need uh, a 60 vote total to pass something. So the commission is over and uh, the, the march to authoritarianism in the United States rolls on. And of course, there's talk of trying to get rid of the uh, filibuster in the mm-hmm. in the Senate. There, it's it's one of it's a holdover, kind of like a not exactly a loophole, but something that's outlived its its usefulness. Was it ever really useful? It makes for uh, good drama at times, or bad drama in the case of Strom Thurmond arguing against the a Democrat arguing against the uh, Civil Rights Bill way back in the day. So that's. They they need to this American Senate's structurally ridiculous, really. When we think about it, they have, it is. It, it really it really is. You've got the the House of Representatives, the massive House of Representatives, and then the Senate can just do this shutdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is, the insurrectionists were after them, right? After mm-hmm. them, after mm-hmm. that, this was uh, within the House. It's coming from inside the House. They broke in, and well, we we know that story, right? But. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story that is unknown is uh, along the lines of who knew what when, who encouraged who to do what, all of that, picking all of that apart. Um, so it sounds like the solution may be, and this this hasn't come to fruition yet, is a select House committee, which is much easier to put together. I think this is coming from Nancy Pelosi and others. Mm-hmm. But it only needs a simple majority rather than these uh, super majorities that they they push for uh, pretty much everything. A committee like that would be along the lines of the Benghazi committee. Yeah, we know how that went, mm-hmm. right? But anyway, the structurally would be the same. So it's it's not as if this is going to um, disappear completely. But how it's going to go down uh, structurally will be will be different, right? 
But that's yes. and it, and it's also open to much more accusations of being a partisan exercise, which I mean it would have been anyway. And it sort of was before the vote even took place because um some Republicans were mad about you know the 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 chairperson of the committee who would have been a Democrat getting to choose staffing. And I mean, it, it was already becoming a partisan snipe hunt as it was, but uh, you know, th- that's the bipartisan proposal. So I, the reason hmm. they wanted to do that was to uh, try and avoid this, um, this thing that it was Democrats picking on Republicans, even though, <laughs> even though it was clearly a Republican led insurrection. Um, so I mean that was it was always going to be tilted that way anyway, but that's I digress. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if they could like find a Democrat among them. There's probably one, like somebody registered as a. They're always able to find that person. It's like, what? You're a Democrat and you're at this thing? Yeah, well, but anyway, that's that. <laughs> see, but the yeah. So and another thing too, they don't want this massive uh, commission going on because the midterms are coming up in 2022 and all of this would play out in the wake of that, right? It would be, mm-hmm. it would be the continuous day after day of, of rehashing the thing. And, but the amazing part to me, or it maybe it isn't that amazing is the faith that so many of them still put in Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Like Donald Trump seems like yesterday's man. He probably is. But in in these circles, he is still like Trumpism still reigns, right? He has a lot of, he still has this pull, this influence somehow, which is uh, phenomenal to me and to lots of other people. It's like how how is it that this you're still hold? You don't want to make this guy look bad um, to sort of keep your keep your star shining, right? It's like there's 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 no way. I mean. They they need to do a lot of self examination, I think, as well, to find like the next contender. Like who is, I they don't seem to be running a draft yet for like okay, who is going to be who's going to be like Eric Trump? Like who's gonna, who is going to be the contender in twenty four? Oh, they I, really I, think I, it's going to be Donald Trump, right? There's no way. Well, mind you, I I was one of the people who said there's no way he yeah. could be president. So it's like, yeah. and at this point, from what we've seen in America. Anything is possible, right? Like he could step up again in 2024, but in the meantime, in the shorter term, it's the 2022. I'm not even sure there. It's hard to keep their midterms straight because there's like different things happen in different places. I'm not sure if this is one of the big ones. It probably is, right? The, the 2020. Well, I mean, it's you need to do yeah. some homework on that, but it's like it's one it third of the every Senate and. Yeah, like the Congress is reelected every two years, and then a third of the Senate is 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 um, up for reelection. It's, I mean, it's Trump is almost an. I mean, he is kind of like the Schrodinger figure right now, where he's like he's he's in the middle of it, but he's not really because I mean he has no social media presence. Um, he's not doing his rallies, although from what I understand, he's looking to start a revenge tour um, sometime this summer. <laughs> Um, yeah, he has this silly website that he uses, uh, as a platform that like barely anybody goes to. He does interviews with OAN, which I mean, AON is a network so small that it, it doesn't even have Nielsen ratings, but it, it's, you're, you're right. It, it's like, how is he still a thing? The problem is that Trumpism is, the, is more of a thing than Trump himself. And it, it's all... It, nobody it, like it's being covered as like 
all these separate stories. The refusal to tackle the insurrection issue, um, all the voting rights bill or the voting restriction bills that are coming down, uh, the QAnon stuff, the the recount in Arizona that is happening in perpetuity for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Um, you know, people like DeSantis and, and Abbott who are passing like all the right wing fever dream, like we're banning vaccine passports and we're creating heartbeat bills and um, oh, yeah. we're banning race, critical race theory and all that. All of this stuff is connected into a bigger story about how a small minority of wealthy, straight, white, mostly men in America are building an authority are trying to build an authoritarian regime. And that sounds like really extreme, but I would urge people like, you know, six months ago, did you think that you would be, you know, sitting at home watching CNN as QAnon whack jobs, you know, tear apart the Capitol Hill, marching through the place, looking to hang Mike Pence, building a literal gallows on the Mm. mall. I mean, you can say, oh, it would never happen here all you want, but it's kind of happening here. And more and more people are saying the words slow moving coup. And I have a my fear is that it's it's not going to reach all the way up to the mainstream until it's too late, until the slow moving, the small, the slow moving coup has been complete. And that's the real, I think, fear going forward with all this. Yeah, no, I don't think you're wrong there at all. Like it's it's they can't let their guard down in any of the things you said. Plus. Uh, Roe v. Wade is probably going to disappear, mm-hmm. and it's been that's been I think fifty years, give or take. It'll Something be fifty that... years uh, two summers from now. Yeah, there you go. So like the, the well-established, if people don't know the the abortion law in in America, or, or steers the abortion laws in different states. Among the other things, and, and particularly the, the the changes in election rules, I think Texas is one of them. Among others, it's like they're just just doing all of this tinkering, and the gerrymandering stuff that that is is the problem is part of the problem regardless yep. of politics but we know who it's being driven by and then of course there was the the if you dare speak out like liz cheney did republican liz cheney who was the number three in on uh, capitol hill there for voting to impeach trump and insisting that the election wasn't stolen which is the truth <laughs> Uh, they made an example of her, right? So maybe that's mm-hmm. it. It's like we need to sacrifice some people. I mean, Republicans. <laughs> and then it's like you, you will fall in line. And if Trump is our guy, then he's our guy. And you're just going to follow him. And it's like so. But yet in the Senate, I mean, they have way more power in the Senate, right? Mitch McConnell still appears. Mitch McConnell was the one that said, well, this this commission's going to be slanted and biased and uh the guy invented slanted and biased, right? It's like <laughs> so this just end, endless uh, the swamp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's ever swamp. a swamp creature, it was the turtle. Or like quicksand, right? It's just this yeah. sinking feeling. Like throw me a line. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, we may have to keep an eye on the U.S. because it's too bad. Because it was nice not talking about it every week for the last little while. Anyway, yeah, let's we'll leave that there. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with our interview with Stephen Del Duca. You are listening to Open Sources here on CFRU ninety three point three FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio.
was our Royal Cat Records pick of the week. Royal Cat Records, the 21 MacDonnell in downtown Guelph. Still not sure whether it's pickup only or not, but uh, check out their website or maybe even give them a call to find out what's going on there. And that song was in honor of Paul Souls, a voice that many, many, many Canadian people around the world would know. He was on so many cartoons. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable, but in particular, he was the voice of... I guess he was the voice of Spider-Man, among others, on the mid-late 60s classic Spider-Man cartoon, which also gives us our intro and outro music. So, you know, Paul Souls is one of our uh, superstars here, <laughs> and uh, he was 90 years old. And if you don't, you, you would know the voice. You hear this voice, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that guy. I guess it's just people of a certain age, really, right? But I don't know. That's, it's that's the... well, he's in veterans of, the, of whatever, so. Isn't the 60s... I'm, I'm sure the 60s Spider-Man cartoon is on Disney+. Plus. And if it it's, really? And if it's not, why isn't it? Um, <laughs> but it, it seems to me that's... I thought I thought it was on Disney+, Plus, or it's, maybe it's on streaming somewhere. I don't know, but... I mean, it's it's, it's iconic. They're, like, it's the post... They're on the Hamilton station to uh, right. stage to uh, Disney+. But Plus. The, post, wow. the post-credit scene in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse played credit to the, the 60s spider-man cartoon if you watch it to the very end there's like i mean it also plays into the meme of the two spider-men pointing at each other which is taken from the 60s cartoon but i mean yeah you can't you don't you don't have the meme without the cartoon so yeah that's what i'm saying you don't have the meme without the cartoon anyway uh we <laughs> nice nice and silly to throw it to the Ontario Liberal leader. Um so yeah, we ta- we got a chance to talk to Stephen Del Duca uh, earlier this week. Um so we had a lot to say about uh what's going on at Queen's Park with uh, education, the pandemic, and uh at the very end we come full circle by talking about uh truth and reconciliation, what uh, Ontario should be doing right now on that topic. So uh let us click play on our Del Duca interview. Okay, well Stephen Del Duca, uh thank you so much for, for talking to me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well let's um let's just get down to I guess the the most recent the news we had an, an auditor's general report. Uh, about education. I know the last time you visited Guelph, that was something you were uh, very interested in in uh, talking about. So, you know, they're projecting $12.3 billion, a shortfall over the next nine years. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, look, I, I mean, the publicly funded education system and making sure that it's healthy and properly supported with funding and resources is one of the two most important responsibilities that a premier of Ontario has. You know, number one, um, publicly funded education. The other one, of course, being universal public health care. And as a dad, my daughters are the ones that I'm raising with my wife here in Vaughan, where we live. Um, Our older daughter is in grade eight. Our younger daughter is in grade four. They are both in the publicly funded system. And, you know, I want to see a system that works really well for them and for the two million kids across Ontario who attend schools like theirs. Uh, I wanna make sure that we have small class sizes, that we have really good supports for kids with special needs in the aftermath of this pandemic in particular mental health challenges that so many will have. And the kids are important, of course, they're our paramount concern. Their families are really important, but we also have probably about 200,000 women and men who work on the front lines in education across Ontario. 
teachers, principals, school bus drivers, custodians, early childhood educators. I mean, there's a really big group of people who are so devoted to this system. They need a government. They need a premier that's on their side. And the, the, the truth of the matter is that prior to the pandemic, we saw Doug Ford was already delivering chaos and cuts that were reckless in this area. It's gotten worse during the pandemic. And I am very, very much committed to making sure that we close the funding gap. I know it sounds like a big amount of money, and it is, but there is no better investment in our economy, our economic future, than making sure that we produce world-leading talent through our education system. I, you know, you're talking to about, you know, when, if, you know, you, you and the liberals take power again. That's another whole year in the future, another whole school yes. year. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what's to be done in the meantime? Because it just, it just feels like education, we're kind of lagging there, right? We're, I remember this time last year, uh, the, the, grant, uh, the grant requirements, I can't remember the exact formal title of it, but they hadn't yeah. even gone out yet. It was like yeah, the, the end of June. Yeah, the grants for students needs the GSN. Right. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're on the ball better than I am. But um, <laughs> I mean, that hadn't gone out and school boards are budgeting in June, right. formalizing <laughs> budgets in June. And just like here we are again, uh, education seems to be the last on the list when we're continually told is the yeah. first on the list. And how do we cope with that for another year, especially during this transitional period? Yeah, um, That's where, a great, it's a great question. Yeah. You know, here's what I tell you about that. So last summer, summer of 2020, I put forward a plan. We called it basically an Ontario liberal plan for a safe reopening of schools for September 2020. And that that was centered, obviously, long before we had the vaccines, long before we knew about certain aspects of the virus. The plan that Ontario liberals put out last summer was one where the central feature was class sizes capped at 15, outdoor learning where it made sense, when it made sense, more unconventional classroom spaces, more funding support for custodians, to, keep our, to hire more of them and to keep our schools safe and clean. Uh, we are currently in the midst of working on a revised, updated version of that plan for September 2021. And I, I'm really hoping to be able to release that over the next number of days. And that's not meant, I'm not planning to release it in a partisan way. Mm. I'm actually trying to help. You know, I had the honor of serving for four years inside cabinet in two different senior cabinet roles. I said this last summer, I'll say it again this time around. I hope Doug Ford steals our plan. I hope he picks up the phone and calls me and the other opposition leaders and asks us for advice and for help about what a safe reopening will look like for the schools this year. Obviously, the announcement made last week that um, everybody 12 years of age and older in Ontario should have a second dose of the vaccine by the end of August is really good news. Um, I think that should make it a bit easier to reopen schools and reduce the anxiety that moms and dads have about whether their kids are gonna be safe at school. But there's still a lot of things we need to do around class sizes. Again, support for mental health. I'll tell you something, there are thousands and thousands of kids across the system who've literally disengaged and disappeared from the system because the virtual learning has not been good for them, has not been set up for well, well for them. How are we going to make sure those thousands of kids are back in some kind of classroom setting come this fall? There's a whole bunch of things we have to unpack here. And it's not like it's six months from now or 12 months from now. It's three and a half months from now. So Doug Ford needs to be planning for this right now. And I'm really scared as a dad that he hasn't even begun to plan for September of this year uh, for our kids and for our, the system to be successful. So stay tuned for more details. Okay, well, stay tuned. Um, 
I mean, just to to revisit what you just said, though, I mean, you, you have young uh, children in the school system. Yeah. Um, you know, are they struggling or, you know, do are their friends struggling? You know, what's kind of the day to day effect on them? Yeah, look, listen, there's no doubt about the fact that uh, there is no doubt at all about the fact that the virtual learning uh, in place of the physical in-person learning is just not the same. And I know that we, we you know, in, in the spring, winter, spring of 2020, when the system had to transition literally overnight to online options, that was tough on everybody. I think by and large, our teachers, our administrators, school boards, the kids themselves, their families, they, everybody worked so hard to get that transition right. Uh, and we've done, you know, in many cases, reasonably well with it. But it is abundantly clear to me as a dad that you're never going to be able to replace um, in-person, physical, in-the-classroom learning for kids with a motivated, supported teacher with class sizes that are reasonable, uh, proper supports there, again, for kids with special needs or mental health challenges, there is just no way, I don't care what anybody says, there is no way that doing publicly funded elementary or secondary school through a computer screen will ever be better than the in-person. And so that's why I would really hope that even though we need to build a system that's resilient so it can transition during a moment of crisis uh, better than we did the first time around, uh, you know, I'm really hoping Doug Ford wakes up and realizes he's got to put everything on the table to make sure the in-person experience is as strong as it possibly can be for this September and beyond. And again, that is going to be the central feature of the Ontario Liberal Plan that we'll be releasing in a few days. So what do you think? Uh, and I know this is a debate that's happening in, in all quarters right now. I mean, is it worth going back to school even for a few weeks, you know, in June? Is I mean, is well, that viable? It, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolutely, it's a difficult decision to make. What I said last week, and again, I think about my own daughters, I there's nothing I would like more than for them to be back in person in a classroom, seeing their friends, seeing their teachers and getting that in-person instruction. But I also want, and my wife wants, we want to have that peace of mind knowing that the safe is safe, the school is safe, the classroom is safe and healthy, there's proper ventilation in place, um, that the class sizes are not too big, like all of the things that you want to see. Um, and so what I said last week was, I don't think it's a one size fits all solution. We've seen different parts of Ontario have to deal with the COVID pandemic differently in terms of their case numbers, where we've had hotspots. So I urge Doug Ford, don't make it one size fits all. Let our local public health units make the decision, working closely with the respective, the, their respective school boards in different parts of this province. And so locally, perhaps in your area, they'll say, yes, let's reopen for three weeks. And perhaps in my area, they, they'll say, no, it's not worth it. The case counts are still too high. I think that's the most responsible way to deal with it. Here's the lousy part, though. <laughs> it's now been five or six days since I said those words publicly. The science table has commented. The chief medical officer of health has, has commented. And yet we still don't have any certainty from Doug Ford. So, look, we're at a point now where I really think Doug Ford is demonstrating again. He's just abandoned all of us leaving us and teachers and students and everybody to just kind of twist in the wind with this uncertainty while he's trying to figure out his own political polling and which way he should go on this issue. And that's, that's a real abdication of leadership. And it's really, it's really kind of pathetic. It's you really think you think that's what's behind this is that he's trying to, I do lick his 100%. fingers, stick his, stick it up, see yeah. where the wind is blowing. 100%. There have been dozens of media articles in the last month written about how his campaign team is now in place, 
Uh, he's kind of gone into hiding. He barely speaks in public anymore. Uh, and, and all of that, all of that is because they got the, he got, Doug Ford got the scare of his life when he suddenly saw his newfound popularity during COVID evaporate when he made so many reckless decisions to reopen prematurely back in February, which has made our third wave so much more brutal than it needed to be. Uh, when he decided that he wanted to give police more powers to start randomly stopping people and trampling on our charter rights, when he decided to close playgrounds, all of these reckless decisions, he got the scare of his life. He's still scared because he is focused on one thing that's getting reelected in June of 2022. Instead of focusing on the 15 million people who call Ontario home, people who need leadership right now. Mm -hmm. Well, we did get to election talk, so let's uh, drive right into it. Um, I mean, the, the campaign is, I, well, I was going to say election day is actually one year from it is. Wednesday. Yeah. Um, I mean, anything can happen in a year. We've seen that in, in how you are sort of looking at the, the future and looking at molding your own campaign. Is it going to come down to the provincial response on COVID as sort of an indictment of their leadership? Or is it like the whole package the last four years? Like, wh where do you think the balance is going to be for Ontarians making a decision? No, I actually think it's going to be a little bit different from both of those options. I've, I've always believed election campaigns are about the future, not the past. I think people... People, look, people have lived through COVID. It's been horrible. It's been incredibly disruptive. Uh, that's obviously, that's left an imprint on all of us that will be there for many, many years for the rest of our lives. We, we will always look back at this moment, these 15 months plus, and realize that it was, it was a seminal kind of change or disruption in our lives. Um, but people will want, I think, come June 2nd of next year, they're going to want to see what leader, what team uh, is putting forward that forward-looking positive vision for the next four years, the next eight years, the next 20 years for this province. And I think in particular, because of the pandemic, there will be three kind of touchstone elements people will want to wrap their arms around. I think number one of one, number one of those is like security. I think after being so disrupted and having things turned upside down for more than a year, people will want to be able to feel that sense of being anchored again to something. So stability and security. I talked earlier in the public education space about resiliency having a system that can transition seamlessly, I think people will want to see what's the plan going forward to make sure we're never left vulnerable like we were in February, March of 2020 ever again, whether that's on the production of PPE or a school system that can transition effortlessly or a whole bunch of other things. How do we build up our domestic resilience so we are ready for future challenges and opportunities? And then the third touchstone is empathy. I think, I think we, are, we are a caring and generous people here in this province. I think during this pandemic, we found new and creative ways to look out for one another. But I think we've also seen a lot of the gaps that we have in society be ripped even further apart and be really brought into stark relief. And so I believe government does have a responsibility, a moral obligation, if you will, to step up and help encourage more empathy. So we are looking out for one another. So security, resiliency, and empathy, I think, are the three touchstones. But people want to see, Del Duca, where do you plan to take the province? What do you want to do on education? What do you want to do to deal with the climate emergency? What do you want to do to deal with universal public health care, elder care, long-term care? And when we're building an economy, as we now hear a lot from Joe Biden south of the border, what kind of economy do we want? Do we want one where we just produce prosperity and the wealthy keep getting richer? Or do we actually want to you know, build out broad and fair sharing of our prosperity here in this province. So 
that's what I think the people of, of Guelph, the people of Ontario, they're going to want to see. And that's what we're working furiously to prepare for, because I want to put a forward, a forward looking positive roadmap in front of the people of Ontario come the next election. Let me present what I think may be a counter argument to, to that. Um, and you may have seen the post media poll that shows that like not just the, the PCs were, were down in favorability ratings, but all the provincial parties were. Um, people are going to be, you know, probably coming at you and saying, Del Duca, you know, if you were part of a government that was in power for 15 years, a lot of a lot of the things that COVID shined a stark light on were systemic things in long-term care homes, things in education yeah. that were left wanting. It's, you know, they're going to be coming at you saying, how will it be different this time? Well, look, I, so I think for sure the other opposition, all the other parties are going to be saying that. There's no doubt about that. I think that, you know, whether you're Andrea Horvath and you're kind of fighting for your life because this is your fourth election campaign, you know, this is probably your last shot to become premier in Andrea's case and you're Doug Ford. Obviously, he likes having power. He likes to reward as well-connected friends. That's why he wants to win again. Like for sure, those different, let's say, opponents, we're gonna, they're going to be throwing that stuff in my direction and some of the media will as well. But again, I've never said since the day that I became leader of my party that during our time in power that we were a perfect government. Remembering I was there for the last six years that we were in power, we weren't perfect. I think on balance, we delivered some really incredible things for the people of Ontario. It's one of the reasons we were elected or reelected four times uh, for consecutive elections where we were successful. So when I think about the creation of the Green Belt or the decision to close coal, uh, I think that the people of Ontario, generally speaking, loved those concepts and said, yeah, we want to keep going in that direction. You mentioned education. We were the government that reduced class sizes and raised graduation rates considerably during our time in office. And that's good, you know, that's good stuff as well. The number of nurses, doctors that we hired, the number of hospitals that we built, all of that stuff's on the public record and it's all good. That does not mean that we were perfect. It does not mean that we, were, we got everything right. We obviously did not deliver enough. You mentioned long-term care, it's a great point. But pointing fingers at one another and looking in the rear view mirror, well, that's not gonna do anything good for your future. Mm. It's not gonna do anything good for the people of Ontario. And I'll say that as it relates to Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, and even Mike Schreiner, I really don't intend to spend the 28 days of the election campaign attacking the other three leaders. If we've learned anything during COVID, it's that that political playbook has to get thrown into the garbage. And we need a new and different way to do our politics so that we're not constantly caught in this partisan whipsaw of every new party that comes to power thinks everything the old party did was garbage and needs to be undone. That makes no sense. Look at paid sick leave. We, before leaving office, introduced two paid sick leave days for workers across Ontario. What's become the one, the number one, aside from long-term care, the number one issue around the rallying cry around something Doug Ford could have done far earlier in the pandemic had he chosen to for Ontario's workers to keep the case counts low, particularly in hot zones, mm -hmm. reinstate paid sick days. It took him 410 days to do that. Why? Because he was so philosophically opposed because liberals had introduced them the first time around. How many people got sick in Ontario because he decided to be partisan and stubborn? How many people died in Ontario tragically because he couldn't make the effort to bring in paid sick days? I'm using that as a proxy as one example. I don't want to, I don't want, look, when you lose your seat, like I did in 2018, and you go through that kind of humbling experience you learn a lot about yourself and about what you're here on this planet to do. 
Hmm. And I do not want to look back when, as I get closer to the end of my days and think, well, that's okay. I, I really got in all the partisan attacks I possibly could. I don't want to think about that. That's not a benchmark of success for me. A benchmark of success for me is what kind of future did I help build with everyone else for my daughters? What kind of future did I help build for my parents who are aging? You know, what did I do with my time in this position of power? Should I get the chance to govern this province? What did I do with my time to make people's lives better? Mm-hmm. That's far more important to me and I think the people of Ontario than laying blame and pointing fingers. And that's what I'm going to remain focused on. Having said all that, um, the, it looks like the, the liberal candidate for Guelph is going to be Rochelle Devereaux, who is the, the CEO of the Guelph uh, Community Health Center. A very well-known advocate for for health, wellness, you know, fighting the opioid pandemic. Uh, you know, a lot of community good comes out of there. Um, is are, are we to take it that maybe that's kind of emblematic of the kind of team you're putting together, kind of more forward-thinking, more public health, public good focused? So I, I am aware, of course, that Rochelle's thrown her hat into the ring, which I think is a great sign. I'm really happy to hear that. We've had now more than 500 women and men across Ontario. There are 124 ridings. We've had more than 500 who have requested papers and um, the the nomination application and have uh, expressed a desire to run, which I think is a really good sign about the rebuilding of our party and the positive vision that we are putting forward. We haven't called a nomination meeting yet in Guelph, so I can't tell you for certain I know who our candidate will be, but I think Rochelle does represent, and there are lots of other women and men like her across this province, who stepped up from different spheres, different areas or sectors and said, I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent, I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor. And what we have in place right now in Ontario with Doug Ford is not good enough for our collective future. And when we look at the opposition leaders that exist today, be it Mike Schreiner or Andrea Horvath, we don't think either one of them has what it takes to get across the finish line to make sure Doug Ford's first term in office is in fact his last term. So we want to sign up with the Ontario Liberal Party. We want to work with you, Stephen, in this case, me, obviously. Uh, We want to build that future, that positive forward looking roadmap for the province. And so I'm thrilled about the kind of team that we're assembling. And I know that regardless of who wins our nomination in Guelph, uh, we're going to have a really, really strong candidate there. We're going to give Mr. Schreiner a run for his money. And I think Guelph, because of the vision and the team that we are going to put together and the plan, I think Guelph is going to come back into the Liberal column. Mm-hmm. Well, that's on the record now, so we can revisit that <laughs> next time next year. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, before I let you go, I, I, I'm wondering if we could dedicate a couple of minutes of talking about the news out of BC, the Kamloops Residential School and the discovery of a mass grave there. I mean, I'm realizing we can't really necessarily do anything about that here in Ontario, but I mean, it is a reminder that uh, uh, there is a lot of I guess, runway left to go to achieve reconciliation. And what are your thoughts in terms of what we should be doing now to help get to those goals? Listen, it's um, when the story first broke a couple of days ago, I mean, we've seen all the words in media and elsewhere. We're all saying the right things. It is heartbreaking. It's horrific. Uh, it is, um, it, you know, as a, as a dad, again, it's beyond the pale to consider what Indigenous families, Indigenous children had to go through for so, so many years Uh, with that institutionalized systemic racism, discrimination, all of it, all of it is just absolutely horrific. The Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, I think did a phenomenal job of presenting a very comprehensive plan uh, for how to deal with reconciliation. I think we've made some progress here in Ontario. I was proud to be part of a government led by a premier who did apologize in the legislature. 
we did create a whole series of measures and steps and policies and programs that were designed to help deal with reconciliation. I will say, and I don't want to get partisan here at all, there were steps made in the earliest days by Doug Ford that I believe took us backwards uh, with respect to Indigenous reconciliation, eliminating a standalone ministry, for example, for Indigenous relations, not following through on the changes to the curriculum around uh, you know, educating our kids about what took place through residential schools. Those were all steps backwards. I really hope for the balance of time that he has as Premier Doug Ford will pause and reflect upon, because he's a dad too, right? Reflect upon what it, I mean, I can't even contemplate what it must have been like for those children, for their families, and for the thousands of others here in Ontario and across this country who had to go through that torturous, torturous experience that should never be allowed, should never have happened in the first place, needs to be called out for what it is. We need to not only remember, we need to educate ourselves and future generations so that we never allow something that horrific to ever happen again. Well, on that, I think all parties and people can agree. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Stephen Del Duca, we'll uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, we'll chat again soon. My pleasure. Stay safe and healthy. And thank you for this opportunity. And once again, that was Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Um, stay tuned to hear more from that voice because uh, he's, uh, he's not messing around. He's coming for Guelph. Wh- whoever ends up being the candidate for Guelph, Stephen Del Duca is coming for Guelph. So you've, you've, you've been warned. And should mention that, of course, we extend the invite to all uh, party leaders to come on. Of course, we know Mike is on, but uh, we're still working on the other two. Because <laughs> uh, potentially, with Stephen Del Duca on, you know, it could be that we will have actually had or have had a premiere mm-hmm. on our show, right? So we will have to see. That'll be a real feather in our caps, which is mm-hmm. what what we're here to collect. So anyway, here, premier elect. <laughs> Yes, Doug and Andrea, you're both invited, so we know you're listening. <laughs> we, we know they listen religiously. Uh, so that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. If you want to stay connected to us at our website, go to opensourcesguelph.com or on the Facebook at Open Sources Newswire and on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. This show can be found on our website every Monday at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or at your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and the Spotify. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can find my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter, and for more information about CFRU, what we do, and all of that, scheduling information, check out CFRU.ca. It's all there. You can listen to us there and all of our other fine shows. So check it out. Check it out indeed. And check out DJ Sounds Good to Me here at the top of the hour on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We've been open sources and we will be open sources again at 5 p.m. next Thursday and we will see you then.